I like the summer because the summer is the time when we get to sort of just wander through some great passages of Scripture. We take our time. We're not limited to a certain number of weeks for a series or, or even just a certain Sunday morning to cover a passage. And this will be one of those Sunday mornings that um, will be a little different than your notes indicate. If you have the app downloaded to your phone or your tablet or whatever device you happen to use, you will probably see several pages of notes. Well, today we're just really gonna get through the introduction because I feel like the introduction is important enough or powerful enough to stand alone as one message. But more importantly than that, I feel like it's the message that God has, well, that he wants us to focus on this morning. And I've been praying that God will give you eyes to see and ears to hear the truth today and that you can walk away and live differently and be changed by the power of God's word through his Holy Spirit. So I wanna ask you a question today. I uh, wanna just take a quick poll. I did this in staff meeting on Tuesday uh, to various results. Um, does anybody in here, do you love, um, are you a, a fan of Wheel of Fortune? Anyone, a big Wheel of Fortune fan, anybody? I need to see hands, I got a spotlight in my eyes, okay. Uh, anybody have strong feelings uh, about Wheel of Fortune? Uh, the other way, like you, you hate Wheel of Fortune, you don't like Wheel of Fortune, anybody? So Lori Shaw is Pastor Dan's wife. I asked her this first service. I leaned over and I'm, during the worship song, I'm like, hey, you like Wheel of Fortune? She was like, that's pretty random during worship, isn't it, Pastor Rick? And she goes, I love Wheel of Fortune. She said, I want to, one of my life goals is to be on Wheel of Fortune as a contestant. And uh, so we're going to pray for Lori that God will help her actualize her life goal. If you send it out there into the atmosphere, no, I'm, I'm just teasing with you. Uh, you if you, do, if you do become a contestant, will you mention the church? Will you just some, yeah, just give a shout out to Cap City? Yeah, uh, we can't help with that, but we can, yeah. God will send it back to you sevenfold as the scriptures say. I hate Wheel of Fortune, hate it, hate it. And I wanna tell you why. Matter of fact, when it comes on in my house, if I hear it come on, I, I literally will jump up and find the remote control and change the channel. I absolutely hate Wheel of Fortune. There are a few shows I hate. There's a movie I won't watch, The Wizard of Oz, scares me to death, will not watch it, cannot stand it, hate it. There are TV shows I will not watch, one of them, Wheel of Fortune. You may wonder why, you'd never in a million years guess. But next time you see Wheel of Fortune, this is what I want you to do. Listen to the very beginning of Wheel of Fortune. Listen to when they are doing the introductions. The music comes on. This is what the announcer says. And now it's time to welcome the stars of our show, Pat Sajak and Vanna White. And they come walking out, you know, and, and everybody's like, ooh, look at Pat and Vanna. And they're the stars of the show. I'm like, are you kidding me? Perhaps the stars of the show are the companies that pay for the commercials, that pay for your inflated salaries and all of the work that you've had done over the years. Maybe the stars of the show are the contestants who come on and play the games. Maybe it's you and I who watch these shows, but it's certainly not Pat and Vanna. They're not the stars of the show. A star of the show is somebody who stands back and the world revolves around them. The star of the show is somebody who commands that everybody cater to them, that wants the attention and wants the focus. It drives me absolutely crazy that they would introduce themselves to America as the stars of the show. Why, you might ask? Well, I don't consider myself the star of any show. I mean, I'm a, I'm a preacher, I teach you guys. I'm certainly not the star of a show maybe a Higgins to the Tonight Show that points people toward the star. You are not the star of the show in life. There's a hard one. Sometimes we feel like we're the stars of the show. 
The world should revolve around us. We should get accolades and be made comfortable. People should treat us really well. And as a matter of fact, we gauge experiences and events and groups we join and friends we make by what comes back to us and not what we give. And you know, we're not the stars of the show. You and I are just people who point to the star of the show. And may I tell you who the star of the show is? It's Jesus. And whether or not you happen to stand on a stage or whether or not you happen to sit in a chair or serve or whatever it is we do together, we point to Jesus as the star of the show. And to me, that's the only reasonable place for us to be. So I pick on people like Wheel of Fortune. It was kind of funny in staff meeting. I asked, there were some adamant responses in defense of Pat and Vanna. So you'll know they were well represented. And I said, but did you know the wheel actually forms a pentagram? And so they're not, I'm just teasing with you. I don't think it does. You can check next time you watch. Not really the point, but we're going to talk today about not being the star of the show. We're going to talk today about who, in fact, is the star of the show. We're going to begin talking through a story that is, I believe, the Apostle Paul's favorite story as he wrote the New Testament, his favorite Old Testament story. I believe that it's been referred to in the New Testament probably more times than in any other story, at least that I'm aware of. And it's one that you and I are going to talk about today. It's the story of the children of Israel, and it's the story of the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. It's a story that we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4 last week. It was mentioned. It's mentioned in the Psalms. It's written about and celebrated, and it's one that you and I can identify with. Now, the Old Testament is written for a number of reasons. One of the reasons the Old Testament is written for us is so that we can learn history of the Jewish people. Another reason is so that we can understand the nature and the character of God, and we understand how God worked throughout history with his people. Another reason is it points us toward Jesus. It's important, it's 100% true, it's the word of God, and it's applicable to our lives. But in these cases, we take the children of Israel, the Jewish people, and we sort of personify them and look at them as one person, and we apply a group of people and their obedience and the principles they use to follow Christ or to follow God, and we apply those principles to our lives. And so we have to do a little work in the application. So we're gonna start by giving you an overview of the entire story. And the reason I do this is because I know that many of you who are here and many who are watching online and many who were in our other service earlier today aren't super familiar with the Bible. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home, and I learned my Bible stories back in the day on a flannel graph, and I had a Sunday school teacher who fed us, uh, you know, those little uh, animal crackers that didn't have much taste to them and gave us Kool-Aid back in the day before they realized that was bad for you. It was probably red Kool-Aid too, and I learned my Bible stories, and this is one of the stories that I learned. Maybe you learned it too. Some people maybe aren't familiar with this story. So as you and I look back, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. It starts with the children of Israel finding themselves in Egypt in captivity. They were in slavery, in bondage, and they prayed and asked God. They cried out to God, God, let us go. We need to be free. We want to be our own people with our own land, with our own leaders, and God delayed So the first time, or for the first time in this story, we see an important principle, and that is that oftentimes we call out to God, we want certainty about the future, and we realize that we don't always get the certainty that we want, but we do get the clarity about what we need to do right now, and that sometimes we wait. And so God sent a person, miraculously, Moses, remember? He was born in a time when he should have been killed by by 
Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army, and he was put into a basket, and he was set afloat down a river and adopted by Pharaoh's daughters and brought into Pharaoh's own home and raised with all the privilege and pomp and circumstance and education and money that a child of Pharaoh would have, ended up committing a murder, and the murder would have been for good reason, you and I would have thought, but probably not good reason according to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and so Moses took off on the run. And the Bible says that he ran. He ran from his own people who didn't understand him. He ran from the Egyptians who wanted to kill him. And he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran. And finally, he sat down, and he sat down by a well. He was done running. Running from his past, running from his mistakes, running from the people who wanted to kill him, running from himself. He sat down and he waited, and we see for the second time in this story that sometimes we want certainty about what's going to happen in the future, that all we have is clarity, what is it we need to do right now. Moses did what he had to do, which was to wait, and he was rescued in an unlikely way by his soon-to-be father-in-law who offered him the prestigious job of being a shepherd, a bunch of ratty old stinky sheep, and a terribly barren landscape on the backside of nowhere And Moses spent 40 years descending into greatness about the time that he was done waiting, done hoping, done thinking that there may be a second chance. Supernaturally, he wandered upon a burning bush and God spoke to him from the bush. You know the rest of the story. Go back to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses did exactly, well, mostly what God wanted him to do. The children of Israel were freed from captivity and they took off out into the the wilderness and the first major miracle happened where a huge body of water was parted. The children of Israel went right through the middle of it, collapsed back on the army of Pharaoh and then the children of Israel found themselves wandering in the desert. They didn't know where to go. They found themselves, this is the third time in this story that we see them wanting certainty about the future and what's going to happen next, not having this certainty, but knowing God, knowing what they needed to do next, having clarity, and they looked to the Lord and he provided a pillar of cloud by day for them to follow and a pillar of fire at night. They got hungry. And so God provided manna. It was literally called, what is this? It was bread that grew from the ground that appeared and there were manica etiquette and rules they had to follow. They ended up having some encounters with snakes and had to figure out some snake bite remedies. You need to read the story yourself. If you haven't read this, it is tremendous. God led them and it wasn't a straight path. It was like your life and mine. It was a zigzag spider web path to the banks of the Jordan River where they could see across the Jordan River the promised land which would be or was to be their home. Spies went across the river, came back and said, can't do it, people are too big, giants, they'll kill us. And the rest of the people said they're right, we're not gonna go. So they wandered. God said, Instead of obeying me, you chose to shrink back. You chose to obey yourself. You chose to give in to fear. You chose to give in to discouragement. And so an entire generation will die out here. And then we'll give your kids the chance to make it right. You know, one of my prayers for my generation, for me, is that we never hear that from the Lord 
that we never hear, you guys have messed it up, you didn't get it right. So you're all gonna die, and I hope your kids can do a better job than you did. Now, I am not talking about politics, I'm not talking about citizenship, I'm not talking about activism, I'm not, all those things are important. I'm talking about purpose in life. I'm talking about lighting a candle instead of cursing the darkness. I'm talking about making a difference in a world that desperately needs to hear, to hear Jesus. So an entire generation of people dropped dead in the wilderness and came full circle back to the banks of the Jordan River where they camped out, getting a second chance. Now, your notes will give you all that information this week. Don't read ahead. We're going to talk about that next week. I want to talk to you tonight or today about the transition between two leaders between Moses and Joshua. Moses was the leader for that first generation and he had made his own mistakes. He'd done some tremendous things, some great things, acts of obedience. He'd also done some things that disappointed God and he paid the price for these things. And so Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. And so there was a time and there was such a tension here. You and I, we read about it and it's like, ah, no big deal, we weren't there. I'm sure it was just two guys, one passing a torch to the other. Not a, not a huge, you know, no drama, but it was much, much bigger than that because you had Moses who had Joshua from the very beginning, Joshua following him as his assistant, but he was being trained. He was a specialist in wandering. And all of a sudden, there was gonna be a transition. Moses was going to die. Joshua was going to become a leader, but not a leader of wandering. He was gonna become a leader who was a warrior. And it was totally different. And so Moses, in his last moments, I like to think, grabbed Joshua by the arm and Joshua was freaking out, saying, I can't lead this group of people. You couldn't lead this group of people. God can't even lead this group of people half the time. And Moses, I like to think, this is a Rick paraphrase. It isn't in the scriptures. It's alluded to in the scriptures. Grabbed Joshua by the arm and said, listen, I'm gonna die. Old man wandering off, glorious death, probably on a cane, at least a walking stick, walking with younger Joshua, and saying, listen, there are a lot of things you need to know, but God's gonna tell you what you need to know. You're gonna want some certainty, but you're not gonna get certainty. You'll have clarity. You'll know exactly what you need to do next. But he said, remember this. This is what I think he told them. Remember, you're gonna be tempted now, but remember this. You are not the star of the show. The reason that I'm not allowed to go into the promised land is because I forgot that. Moses, the star of the show, he said, I forgot that, and it cost me. Never forget, you are not the star of the show. Well, who's the star? For us, we point to Jesus. For them, They pointed to God and the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God and the coming of Jesus. So there was a leadership transition that happened. Joshua, because he's human, was probably a little freaked out. And you and I, well, we freak out too in times of uncertainty. Oftentimes we spend much of our time demanding certainty from the Lord. I need to know what's gonna happen next. I need to know what's gonna happen next month. I need to know what's gonna happen next year. I need to know what's gonna happen with my relationship, with my 401k, with my job promotion. I need to know what's gonna happen with my health. I need to know what's gonna happen with our government. I need to know what's gonna happen with our world. I wanna know what's gonna, 
and we don't get that certainty. What you and I get is the same thing Joshua got, and that, my friends, is clarity. So let's talk about this. This is God giving instructions to Joshua. These instructions as applicable to you and I as they were to him. We're gonna work through this in our next 15 minutes and I trust that there's gonna be something that the Holy Spirit of God deposits in your heart and will change your life because of it. Joshua, as we said, had been trained by Moses. There was a huge transition. He was scared and God said, be strong and very courageous. Now, how do you command somebody to be strong and very courageous? I can't tell you be strong and very courageous because those are kind of hard to be commanded to do. You can't command me not to be afraid. You can't command me, but yet God did. God was telling him, you be strong and be very courageous. And so I asked the question, the same question that, that you ask or that you may ask, and that's why, how? Because we live in a time where strength and courage they're hard to come by. I talked on a f- the phone to a good friend. He's been a friend since I was in elementary school, an older guy. I say that not to be disparaging, just to let you know he's a couple decades older than me, which means he's a couple decades wiser than me, um, probably more than a couple decades wiser than me. That's the way it should work, right? The older we get, the wiser we should become, the softer heart we should have, the less judgmental, the more encouraging. That's how this guy is. He works with leaders, church leaders across the world, across the country especially. And he asked me how our church was going and I talked to him and I asked him how things were going and what's he seeing? What are you seeing with church leaders? What are you seeing with Christians? And he said, Rick, this is what I see. He said, Christians are freaked out. He used two words. He said, Christians are panicked right now and many of them are paralyzed. And he said, I get it. We're dealing with difficult times. We've been through a pandemic that just won't go away, right? It's like whack-a-mole. You hit it over here and it pops up over here and you hit it over here and it pops up over here and then we got monkeypox, whatever that is. And we got all kinds of stuff to worry about and red zones and green zones and yellow zones and we have an economic hurricane bearing down on us and the price of eggs is going up and gas is over $5 a gallon. And he said, Christians, he kept mentioning that in that way, Christians, are panicked and paralyzed. And he said, most of us are not gonna not be able to go to work if gas is $5 a gallon. Most of us are not gonna be able to, not, to find something to eat, not find something to eat. But he said, our focus has been taken from the things that are important, and he said, we are afraid. What group of people should be more optimistic than Christians? so many step back and there's a choice in life we have to make and friends there is a darkness no doubt about it but you and I have to make a choice every day do we light a candle or do we step back and curse the darkness God says be strong and courageous do not be panicked and paralyzed Be careful to obey the law of my servant Moses. Now, this is the same thing to us as scripture would be. We have the entire canon of scripture 
Genesis is the beginning, Revelation the very end. They only had the law of Moses. The principle's the same for us. Be careful to obey the entire word of God. And this is what God says, just in case we're wondering. He says, do not turn. Now, this is the way we can be strong and courageous. It's the, the way that we can make sure that we're on the path to where we don't have to be afraid. Getting ahead of myself a little bit. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Don't become panicked and paralyzed and decide there's a better way, a different way, that you have a workaround, that God doesn't know, that Scripture's outdated, that it's contextual and, and relevant to a different generation, that you have to be strong and courageous and follow the Word of God and do not swerve to the left or the right. And friends, there's very little in life that's more clear than that. Absolute clarity in the middle of uncertainty because if you do this, you'll be successful wherever you go. And the wherever you go will be wherever God's leading us. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. I was thinking about in the book of Acts how Paul visited a group of people called the Bereans. And the Bereans were fighting some complacency and they were fighting a little bit of spiritual stagnation. And, and, and in the book of Acts, it talks about how they combated that, how they stayed fresh, how they stayed sharp spiritually. And the Bible tells us that they recited the word of God. They talked about the word of God. They practiced the word of God, that it was present among them and in them and through them and it was the anecdote to what they were, were suffering. Isn't it beautiful that this is the beginning, that that was toward the end of Scripture, and the principles are still the same? Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful according to God's definitions. Have I not commanded you? Now, here's really, really, well, it's very important. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go, as long as the wherever we go is the place God wants us to go, as long as we're living according to the word of God, not swerving to the left or swerving to the right, as long as we're taking steps in obedience, as long as we choose to be candle lighters, not darkness cursers, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Let's look at this, these principles. Joshua heard this and had to make some decisions because after all, the decisions that he had to make were not just important to him, but the, the millions of people arguably that were following him among the children of Israel. And so as Joshua had to decide whether he was going to personalize these things, we come back to the idea or the question of worldview. When I've asked you the last few weeks, what is your biblical worldview or what is your worldview? And what I said to you last week was that if the gospel doesn't inform all of your worldview, it doesn't inform any of your worldview. I've had many questions from some of you guys about this whole idea of worldview. And, and literally, it's very simple. It means the way that I view the world and the principles that I stake my life on, the things that I hold dear, the foundation that I build on that's unshakable, that circumstance can't compromise. And this is one of those things that we have to include in our worldview. One of those things that God has given us as certainties. There are many things in Scripture that are promised to us as certainties. But it's all of the stuff in between where we demand certainty 
but all we get is clarity. I will be with you wherever you go if you live according to my laws and follow my plans. That's something that's certain, something that's part of our world view. If God is for us, who can be against us? As long as I'm living my life the way God wants me to live my life. Let's look together at this certainty and clarity together. Omniscience is not a prerequisite to faith. Now, that's one of the things I think that Joshua was probably struggling with. You and I struggle with the same thing. We want to know everything. Or maybe you don't want to know everything. We just want to know more than what we do know. And we struggle with God. Many of my prayers, I want to know more than I know. Oftentimes, I may want to know more than I should know. I want to see what's going to happen. I want a guarantee of what comes next. I want to know the outcome of events. And I see that Joshua is learning, that Moses learned, that only a star of the show would demand to know everything, but that a person who has taken his role and taken his role seriously can become comfortably uncomfortable with not knowing everything, but still having a strong faith because it's more important to know what to do than it is to know what's going to happen next. I'd love to be talking with you guys one-on-one at Smoky Row over coffee and make this statement and look you in the eyes and see how you respond to this. Because I've wrestled with this one all week long I hope we can at least get to the spot where we nod our heads and we agree in principle that it's more important for me to know what to do right now than it is for me to know what's going to happen tomorrow. If I really believe that, if you really believe that, how would that change the way we live? How would that change our walk of faith? How would it change our perspective, our view of our role in this world? So I fast forwarded, and we're skipping so much good stuff, and we're going to come back and cover some of these things, not all of them, to the end of this book, or almost the end in Joshua 24, and Joshua has taken the mantle of servantship, of leadership. He's become a warring in the best possible way, leader, humble, leading his people most of the time the way that God wanted him to lead, and he comes to the very end, and he comes to some conclusions, and it's part of his worldview, part of our worldview. It's part of what we stake our very lives on, and he says in Joshua 24, 2415, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then you make the decision to choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, who among us, who would look at God and say, you know, it's just undesirable for me to serve you? But you know, we live in a way that oftentimes communicates that, even if we don't mean to. And we get so overwhelmed with all of the stuff that we live around and among and the reasons we have to be paralyzed. And we lose focus. 
And as I've said to you, what group of people have more reason to be optimistic than a believer? But it's a battle for where we look. I had lunch with a good friend this week. He's probably watching online today. And he and his wife are involved in one of our city serve teams. And we were talking about his experience. He's a great guy. Like most of us, he's somebody who probably isn't going to go out and buy a brand new Lamborghini, but he's not going to have to not go to work or ride his bike to work if gas gets up to $5.10 a gallon. He does, real, does fine, does well. He and his wife serving in inner city Des Moines public school, elementary school. And they were down at one of these elementary schools and they had just given the teachers some food and hung out and encouraged the teachers and the students. The end of the year, one of our most at-risk schools. And he said, we just hung out in the office. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. And he said, these kids kept coming in. And he goes, it was, they were late. School started like 8.20. And I looked over and I asked the receptionist, why are they coming in late? And she goes, well, they oftentimes have to walk. Their parents don't bring them. They have to get rides. He said, I noticed they were dirty. This is a guy who doesn't see many kids who are dirty. He said, they kept coming in. Their clothes didn't fit right, torn. Looked like they just wandered in off the street. And he said, as they came in, he said, there were so many of them. He said, they walked up to the desk and the receptionist just smiled and said, help yourself, help yourself, help yourself. He said, they went back and got these bags. And these kids walked away with these bags like they were filled with gold. And he said, after the, the group of kids came in and kind of died down a little bit, he said, my wife and I said, we were overwhelmed. We were moved with what we were seeing. He said, what, what was in these bags? And the receptionist, she said, the bags were filled with food. And oftentimes these kids, they certainly didn't eat breakfast. Most of them are on free lunch and many of these kids will take the food home so they have dinner. And some of them even feed their little brothers and sisters. And this is what my friend said. He said, first we got so overwhelmed I mean, you get angry, right? The system needs to do something. The government needs to do something. The world's a terrible place. Kids are hungry. Kids are, and he said, then we realized. And it was such a great moment for me to hear this and see him say this. He said, we realized that we couldn't fix every kid. He said, we couldn't. But he said, we also realized that we sure could help several. He said, we made a difference. We, didn't be, we weren't able to help every single kid in Des Moines. But he said, you know what? We sure helped some of them. And he said, what better place to be? Friends, that's the reason we get excited about serving the Lord. I can't fix the world. But you know what? We can fix some of it by introducing Jesus to people who desperately need to know him in an optimistic and positive way, pointing them toward truth, creating, not condemning. And Joshua says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself whom you're gonna serve. You can go back and serve the little G gods of the people you used to know, or, or and, 
But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So there's my question. Maybe you're not panicked and paralyzed. But you know the thoughts probably crossed your mind. Sometimes the waves come and then they go. But the truths of Scripture are timeless and powerful and certain. But they're also clear. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know exactly what we're supposed to do today. My question to you is the same as my question for me. Who are you going to serve? Because for me and our household, we're going to serve the Lord. Father, thank you for my friends.